Our sermon this morning is in is from First Kings chapters twelve through fourteen. We're going to be looking at the story of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find First Kings chapter twelve on page two hundred and seventy three. So turn to page two hundred and seventy three on a pew Bible. Follow along for that and the, the few pages following it. We've been working through the book of First Kings for the past month or so. We're at the, right at the halfway point. So first half of the of the book deals with King Solomon and his reign and his, his life, his wisdom, but also his folly, uh, you know, the good things that he does, but also the mistakes that he makes. Starting in chapter 12, we see everyone else. So the second half of First Kings deals with uh, all of the other kings of Israel and Judah, respectively. And so we are going to uh, look over those over the next four, four weeks to see King Solomon. We're going to spend four weeks looking at the rest of these kings uh, until we uh, kind of hit a, hit a break at the end of First Kings. Today we're looking at Rehoboam and, and Jeroboam. Rehoboam is Solomon's son and the, the man that he intends for his kingdom to be handed over to upon his death. Jeroboam is another guy. He is uh, a member of Solomon's uh, kind of inner circle in his administration, and he ends up uh, you know, being ruler over a good portion of the kingdom uh, against Solomon's will. So we're going to see how that all kind of takes place uh, as we work through these three, four, three chapters today. So let me pray for us, and then we will get right to work. Father in heaven, we pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we might see you. We pray that we could behold the beauty and the glory of Christ in the gospel so that we can listen humbly and obediently to your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're going to start. Chapter 12, verse 1, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. So last week, uh, the end of chapter 11, we saw that Solomon uh, rested uh, with, his, with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. So Solomon's dead, now his son Rehoboam is going to be installed as king. Verse 2, as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, Jeroboam returned to Egypt. And they sent and they called him and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel. And he said, your father has, or, and they said to Rehoboam, your father has made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. So you've got Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, is going to be installed as king. Jeroboam had received a prophecy um, before Solomon died that said, you're going to receive 10 out of the 12 tribes of Israel as your kingdom. So, so after Solomon dies, you're going to be the next king, or at least king for, of the majority of the kingdom. Solomon didn't like that, so Solomon uh, tried to have Jeroboam killed so that his son Rehoboam could inherit the full kingdom. Jeroboam fled, and now once Jeroboam hears that Solomon is dead, he's going to come back and he's going to kind of make his presence known. And then all of the people see that Jeroboam is back, and they're like, this is a suitable leader to represent our interests before King Rehoboam. So Rehoboam, like his father Solomon, the people were, were tired of the rule. By the time Solomon died, the people were tired of his rule. They were tired of the heavy taxes. They were tired of 
forced labor. They were tired of being treated um, with a heavy yoke. And so Rehoboam comes in and they say, uh, please go easy on us. Let's have a new, a new sheriff, a, a new way of doing things. And so they kind of ask for mercy. And Rehoboam's response in verse 5, he says, go away for three days and then come again to me. Let me think it over. Let me think over whether or not I'm going to be a harsh, cruel, you know, forceful king like my father was toward the end of his reign, or do I want to lighten the yoke and be, go easy on you and give you, you know, give, give you relief? Verse 6, then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was alive. He says, how do you advise me to answer these people? They want me to be merciful. They want me to give them relief. How should I answer them? And they said, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them, in other words, if you will grant them the relief that they need, you know, lower taxes, stop drafting them into service to, to build things that they might not necessarily want to see built. If you'll do that today, speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever, right? Servant leadership. Get, you know, give the people what they're asking for, and then they will be devoted to you. They will run. They'll follow you to the ends of the earth. They'll run through a wall for you, right? That's kind of the, the advice of the older counselors who used to counsel King Solomon. Verse 8, but he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him, and he took counsel instead with young men who had grown up with him, his college buddies. So these guys are, you know, prob- it's likely that they're going to give him good, good advice. Right? All the old people who've been, you know, advising Solomon, ruling over the kingdom for decades, and now here's these guys, his, his college boys. He says, how would you advise me to, to answer these people when they say, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? Verse 10, the young men who had grown up said, this is what you should say to them. Your father made, or, yeah, your father made our yoke heavy, but you will lighten it for us. And thus you shall say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid a heavy, a heavy yoke on you, I will add to it. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Yikes. Right? Not, not exactly a give them what they want today so that we can win them over and they will follow you. More of a, these guys are animals. The only thing that they understand is force. So, you know, you can't let them sense weakness. You have to show them who's boss. <coughs> and their language seems a little weird, right? My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. It seems weird. It's intentional. I don't want to get too graphic, but the word that the ESV translates as thighs is the Hebrew word for loin. So this is, this is you know, this is young males this is locker room talk, right? They're being crass. He's saying, they're not t- he's not talking about his pinky finger and he's not talking about his father's thighs. He's saying, right, these are talking about body parts that are considered to be the measure of one's masculinity. And he's saying, if you think my father was a big, strong, virile man, I'm more of a man than he ever was. I'm bigger than him, stronger than him, more powerful than him. You think he was harsh with his taxes. I will make you work ten times as hard as he did. You know, the, the advice of these college buddies is go in front of them, brag about how big of a man you are, brag about how big and strong you are and how you don't care what they have to say. You're the king. They're not. They're going to do what you tell them to do. That's the, that's, the, that's the counsel from these moron young kids. 
as opposed to the wiser older men who's saying, why don't you like think about, you know, think about how you can ingratiate yourself to them and serve them so that they will in turn be loyal to you and, and serve you. Life, the, the life as a Christian, life as a human, but life as a Christian is a series of choices about what to say and what to do and how to treat people. It's very likely that for any given choice that we have to make, uh, we'll have the opportunity to, to either seek or receive counsel from other people about it. Some of that counsel will be good. Some of that counsel will be bad. You'll, you'll have the opportunity to, to listen to wise, godly counsel from wise people or listen to foolish counsel from foolish people or ignore counsel entirely and just do whatever you want to do without listening to anyone's counsel. The mark of a, the mark of a mature believer is to not just do what you want, right, and disregard all counsel. The mark of a true believer is not to automatically take the counsel that you want to hear, the counsel that conforms with what you wanted to do anyway. The mark of a wise, godly, mature believer is that you seek counsel and then you take good, godly counsel even if it is not what you want to do. Even if it's not what you, uh, what you otherwise would have done. Even if it uh, involves sacrifice of some kind. That's the mark of a mature believer. And Rehoboam uh, made a bad choice. Verse 12. So then Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day. And the king said, come to me on the third day. The king answered the people harshly, forsaking the counsel that the old men gave him. And he spoke, spoke according to what the young men said. He says, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips. I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. And it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which was spoken by Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Naboth. So he, he takes bad counsel and he treats the people poorly. It's probably not going to end well. Verse 16. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered and said, why are we even here? Right? What's... What, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, Israel. Right? Look now to your own house. Right? It's every man for himself. We're, we're out of here. We're going to rebel. We're going to secede a, away from the rule of Rehoboam. And Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. So the southern region of Judah, which is Jerusalem, the surrounding area, the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin, Rehoboam rules over those people there. Everyone else is defecting and kind of going away. Verse 18. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor. So, so they just said, they said, lighten our load. He said, no, I'm not going to. And they said, well, then fine, we're out. Everyone, you know, to your own, to your own tents. It's probably not going to end well. He sends the taskmaster over the forced labor, over the people that said we're not going to do forced labor anymore. And they stoned him to death. With stones, And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot and flee to Jerusalem. Verse 19. So Israel had been in, has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and they called him to the assembly, and they made him king over all Israel. And there was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. Parenthetically, the tribe of Benjamin as well, because it's right there in that same area. It's kind of considered one and the same. So... 
At this point, the, the, there's been a civil war. The nation is split in two. We have ten northern tribes of Israel under the rule of Jeroboam. We have two southern tribes of Judah under the rule of Rehoboam. Verse 21, Rehoboam came to Jerusalem and he assembled the house of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. He says, we're, gonna, we're not going to take this laying down. We're going to go up there. We're going to fight. We're going to impose our will. We're going to beat the northern tribes of Israel into submission. They will be under my rule, whether they like it or not. Verse 22, but the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, and said, Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, the king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, this is what the Lord says. You shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man should return home, for this thing is from me, the Lord. And they listened to the word of the Lord, and they went home again according to the word of the Lord. (coughs) So Rehoboam listens this time to the word of God through the prophet and says, all right, I'm not going to go up. I'm not going to fight uh, with them. I'm not going to try to impose my will on them. There's, there's relative peace between Israel and Judah for now, but it won't, it won't last long. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. Jeroboam ruling over the ones in the north. Rehoboam ruling over the ones in the south. Verse 25, then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and he lived there. And he went out from there and he built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. All of the people in the northern ten tribes of Israel, they're going to go back down to Judah and they're going to be loyal to Rehoboam instead of me. If this people go up and offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord of Jerusalem, then the heart of the people will turn against their Lord to Rehoboam the king and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam. So Jeroboam says, I've got a pretty good situation going here. I'm the king of ten tribes. I've got more land. I've got more people. I'm kind of the, the default, you know, king of Israel, the, the lion's share of Israel. But the one thing I don't have is the temple, right? Uh, Rehoboam has less people, less land, but he's got the monopoly on the temple. All of our people want to worship God at the temple. I'm afraid that, if I, that they're all going to travel down there, and when they do, they're going to be, they're going to be allured back into allegiance to Judah instead of being loyal to me, the king of Israel. So now I know what I'm going to do. Verse 28. The king took counsel, and he made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, Israel, here are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he sent one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. Priests were supposed to come from the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So we've got fake gods, fake temples, fake altars, fake priests, fake sacrifices. It's a whole entire counterfeit religion that he's setting up. And he did it in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests on the high places that he made. And he went up to the altar in Bethel on the 15th day in the month and devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel, and he went up to the altar to make offerings. This is not going well in the northern tribes of Israel. I mean, literally the next pair, like, like within the same breath, the author says, they seceded away from Judah because they were being treated cruelly and harshly, and then immediately they make idols and they start to worship those idols. 
Which, you know, if you read that and you think, that just seems silly. That seems dumb. You're right. Right? Like, the whole point of worship, the whole point of worshiping something is that you say, right, there, there's someone or something that you're thinking, you're, you're bigger than me. You're stronger than me. I bow before you, right? You, you made me. You take care of me. And so I am offering myself to you in service to you so that you might in turn give me the things that I want and need, but I am not strong enough and not big enough to, to get for myself. That's what worship is, right? You're, it's like the, the worshiper is inferior to the, the one receiving the worship. And so if, it, if you are as confused as I am, that someone would bi- make, fashion a golden calf and then worship that and say, this calf that I just made five minutes ago is the thing that brought you and your forefathers out of Egypt decades ago. If, you, if that sounds stupid to you, you're, you're right. That is a stupid thing. It doesn't make any sense. In fact, uh, Isaiah has a similar argument in Isaiah chapter 44. He's asking the same questions. Why would anyone ever worship an idol that you made, right? He says, why would you, why would you go out of the forest and cut down a tree and then turn around and, and say that that tree, like, fashion it into an idol and then say that that idol has life, that idol has done anything for you? He says, you literally cut down a tree and part of it you use for firewood and the other part you make into a god and say that this is the god who has saved us. Isaiah says, that's the dumbest thing that I've ever heard. Like, how do you even know which one's firewood and which, one is, which part of the tree is firewood and which part of the tree is God? It doesn't make any sense. It's exactly what Jeroboam does, right? This, is the, this calf that didn't exist five minutes ago is what brought us out of, of Egypt. Of course, it's also ironic that he mentions Egypt because all of this is a little bit reminiscent of what happened in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, you have Pharaoh oppressing the people of God, enslaving them, forced labor, heavy taxation, and they come to him and they ask for relief. Hey, this is a heavy burden. Please take it easy on us. And what does Pharaoh say? No, I'm not going to take it easy on you. You've had a quota to make bricks. We've been giving you straw and saying you have to make bricks out of this straw. Well, since you complained about it, now your back's going to hurt because you, now you've got to go get your own straw and use that to make your own bricks. So you complained and now it's even worse. It's the same as what Rehoboam said. They come to Rehoboam and they say, please have mercy on us. Please give us relief. And he says, I'm going to make it even worse because you are complaining. Rehoboam is kind of positioning himself as the next Pharaoh. He looks a lot like Pharaoh, kind of like his dad did, right? His dad Solomon looked a lot like Pharaoh with the enslaving people and exploiting people and amassing gold and horses and women, right? Like Solomon and Rehoboam kind of both look a lot like Pharaoh looked in, uh, in the first probably five chapters of Exodus. And so up until this point, Jeroboam has kind of looked like Moses, the guy who comes to the people who are being oppressed and exploited and enslaved, and they kind of rally around him as their leader, and they say, we want you to lead us out of slavery. We want you to liberate us and bring us into a space where we can live and thrive because we've been oppressed up until now. So Jeroboam has kind of been like the next Moses, but now he also looks like the next Aaron, 
Because in Exodus 32, what does Aaron do as soon as they leave Egypt and they go into the wilderness? He builds a golden calf, just like Jeroboam. In fact, they say the same exact things. Um, uh, uh, in Exodus 32, after Aaron builds the golden calf, he says, Israel, here are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Word for word, Jeroboam quotes him word for word, quotes what Aaron said. So, so Jeroboam builds two golden calves, just like Aaron built one, and they say the same things, which is, God didn't save us. God didn't bring us out of Egypt. This calf that we just built saved us and brought us out of Egypt. So it's not looking good. And it prompts a, a confrontation from the prophet in verse 13. And behold, a man, or I'm sorry, in chapter 13, verse 1, and behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. And Jeroboam was standing by the altar and he was about to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar and the word of the Lord. And he said, O altar, altar. Thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. That's, not, that's kind of ominous. So, so this is Jeroboam's big day. The cele- he's going to celebrate and dedicate the temple that he just built, and he gets heckled. Right? Someone comes up and says, uh, he's talking to the altar, and he says, uh, we're about to sacrifice animals on you to the gods and to the golden calves. I'm here to tell you, human beings are going to, like, A, the, uh, there's going to be a king named Josiah of the line of David. So he's down in Judah, and he's going to come up here, and he's going to destroy this altar, and he's going to kill the priests of the fake gods, and they're going to be burnt. The human beings, idol-worshipping fake priests, are going to be killed and burned on this offering. And then in verse 23, or I'm sorry, in verse, yeah, and so that actually happens. That happens in 2 Kings chapter 23. But in verse 3, he says, if you don't believe me, because that's future tense, if you don't believe me, I'll tell you something that's going to happen right now so that you can know that I'm telling the truth. This is a sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. So he says, if you don't believe me that that Josiah is going to come up here and kill all the priests and burn them on the altar, which will happen and which did happen, He says, here's how you can know that I'm telling the truth. The altar is going to supernaturally break in half, and the ashes that are on it are going to be poured out and spilled out. And he stretched out his hand, verse 4. Oh, yeah, um, um, so he says that in verse 3. Before that happens, though, in verse 4, the king, Jeroboam, hears this, and he doesn't like it. He's like, this is my big day. I'm about to dedicate this altar that I built. Everything is cool. So he stretches out his hand, and he says, seize that man, right? He hears him calling. He says, seize him. And his hand, which was stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. So his hand, like, freezes. He gets, like, you know, his, his, he gets a muscle spasm or something, and his hand is stuck. And then, so, so Jeroboam's sitting there with his arm, kind of dead arm, and then the altar behind him breaks and tumbles down to the ground, and ashes pour out of it, exactly what the man of God said. So Jeroboam, this is not a good situation. He, you know, he mistakenly thought that he was in charge, like, he thought, here's some, min- some crazy person who I'm going to have captured and thrown in prison because he dares, he has the audacity to interrupt my ceremony. So seize him, his arm freezes up, the, the altar breaks down just like the man said that it would. So he's like, mm, I think maybe that guy really is a prophet of God, and I think maybe he's in charge and I'm not. 
So then he changes his tone in verse 6. Then the, so he says, seize him, get him, uh, right? Verse 6. Okay, hey, please do me a favor, right? Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that, the, that my hand may be restored to me. So in one sentence, it's get that guy, throw him in prison. How dare he? The next sentence, it's okay, you were right. I was wrong. Please, please heal my hand. <coughs> and then the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and it became as it was before. Whew, right, dodged a bullet there. The altar's still broken, but at least my hand is back. So we tried this stick, right? We tried throw him in jail. How dare he say something against me and against my precious uh, temple? Now let's try the carrot. Then he says, And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. So he's basically bribing him, right? Come home with me. I'll give you whatever you want. All I want from you is don't do that again. Don't say that I'm a bad king. Don't say that the altar that I built is bad, right? I want you to pronounce a blessing from God over me, and I'll give you whatever I want in order to make that happen. Verse 8, man of God, the prophet, does not want to do that. He says, king, even if you give me half of your house, I will not go with you. I'll not eat the bread or drink the water in this place because I was commanded by God saying you shall not eat the bread or drink the water or return by the way that you came. So the prophet went home another way and he did not return the way that he came to Bethel. So the stick didn't work. Seize him, throw him in jail. The carrot didn't work. Come home with me. I'll give you whatever you want. The prophet's leaving and it's looking like his prophecy about Bethel being destroyed is going to, is going to stay standing. But now we have another character in verse 11. Not the young prophet that just did that, but an old prophet. Now an old prophet, where am I here? Ah, Now an old prophet in Bethel and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. And they also told their father the words that he had spoken. So here's this old prophet who lives in Bethel. He has some allegiance to Bethel. So he's like, I don't like that. I'm a prophet of God, but I don't really like that prophecy either because it's speaking against my homeland. So verse 12, he says, which way did he go? And the sons showed him the way. And he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. I'm out of here. Verse 14, he went after the man and he found him sitting under an oak tree. And he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And the younger prophet said, I am. And then the older prophet said, come home with me and eat bread. Same offer that Jerob. So he's like, you know, we already tried the, the stick of throw him in jail. That didn't work. We tried the carrot from Jeroboam. Come and eat bread with me. Have whatever you want. That didn't work. Here's the carrot from the older prophet. Come eat bread with me. Verse 16, he says, nope, I'm not going to return with you. Neither will I eat your bread or drink your water. For God told me, don't eat the bread, drink the water. Just return the way that you came. All right. So he's like, he's passing the test. Like the younger prophet is passing the test and obeying God time after time after time. But the older prophet is sneaky. Verse 18. Listen, I get it. You're a prophet. I'm a prophet just like you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying, bring the younger prophet back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. The older prophet lied to the younger prophet to get him to come back and eat the bread and drink the water so that he could try to ingratiate himself to him so that he could convince the younger prophet to pronounce a blessing over Bethel instead of a curse over Bethel. And the younger prophet went with him and ate the bread and drank the water. So this is not good. The younger prophet disobeyed the explicit command of God to not eat bread and drink water from anyone in Bethel. The older prophet lied to him and tricked him and told him to come do it by saying that he had a word from the Lord that he never actually got. 
So it's probably not going to end well. Verse 20. They sat at the table. The word of the Lord came to the prophet who had, who had brought him back. And then he cried to the younger prophet, the man of God, who was there. And he said, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord, and you have not kept the, man, the command that the Lord God commanded you, but you have come back and you have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, Don't eat the bread and drink the water. Because of this, your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. Hey, what the heck, man? Like, you did it. You are the one who told me to come here and eat the bread and drink. You said that God told you that I was supposed to. It's like the pot calling the kettle black. Like, you're, I'm only here because you tricked me and convinced me to come. And now you're acting all scandalized, like how, you know, how could you have disobeyed the Lord like you did? So both prophets are guilty before God. After the younger prophet had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey, um, that he had been brought back on, and he went away. And when he went away, here's what happens if you disobey the explicit, direct commands of the Lord. When it went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown to the road, and his donkey stood beside it, and the lion stood beside the body. So this is not a random thing. It's not like he just happened upon a lion. This is a, like a, this is a God-ordained there's the dude who's dead. The lion killed him. The lion's not eating him like you would expect him to, nor is the lion attacking or eating the donkey like you would expect him to. The lion's just sitting there. Just like, God told me to kill him and then just leave him there, and that's what he did. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road and the lion standing by the body, and they came and told the, the old prophet, and the old prophet said, that must be the younger prophet who disobeyed God. God has given him to the lion, has torn him and killed him, he said, saddle my donkey, I'm going to go back and get him. He goes and he finds the body on the road. The donkey and the lion are standing beside it. The lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. Verse 29, the prophet took up the body um, of, from the man of God that he laid it on the donkey, brought it back to the city and mourned him and buried him. And he laid the body in his own grave and he mourned over him saying, alas, my brother. Right? When I die, and then he says to his sons, when I die, bury me in this grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. I don't know. A little, too little too late. Maybe don't do the thing that gets me killed in the first place instead of acting like you're really sad that I'm dead and then acting like we're BFFs and you want your bones buried next to my bones for all of, of eternity. Right? Like you kind of could have played it a little differently leading up to this. For the saying, he called out the word of the Lord against the altar of Bethel and against all the houses and the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. So the old prophet realizes that guy was right. I shouldn't have lied to him. He's dead because I lied to him and because he disobeyed. But that happened. I'm, I'm complicit too. And because of that, because of his sin and my sin and the sin of everyone in Samaria, the judgment of God is going to come against all of us for our idolatry and our sin. Now, you'd think, after all of this crazy stuff that's going on, you'd think after God has made it very clear, definitively clear, that if you turn away from me, if you worship other gods instead of me, if you lie about what God has said to you, if you disregard the word of God, there are consequences. Even the man of God, who is called especially as a prophet of God, if he doesn't obey God, there are serious, dire consequences for him. You'd think after seeing that, Jeroboam would right the ship, and start walking with God. You think wrong. Verse 33. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but he made priests for the high places again from among the people. And any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And of this thing, 
uh, and this thing became sin in the house of Jeroboam, so it's to cut off and destroy from it, uh, destroy it from the face of the earth. Not looking good. Now, chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. So Jeroboam is leading the northern tribes into sin, into idolatry. He's leading them astray. And, and when that's happening, his son gets sick. And you know, he gets a, this is a really bright guy, right? Just one, like one thing after the next, you just kind of see him just, you know, stepping in it, stepping in bear trap after bear trap. Jeroboam says to his wife, I've got a great idea. Why don't you disguise yourself so that no one knows that you're my wife Go to Shiloh, go find Ahijah, the prophet, the same guy who said that I was going to inherit 10 out of the 12 tribes, which, is, which happened. I am now king of 10 of the 12 tribes. So go find Ahijah, the guy who clearly has received special direct revelation from God, the guy that's impossible to trick. Go try to trick him. So go find Ahijah who said to me, I should be the king of the people, take ten loaves and some cakes and a jar of honey, and he will tell you what shall happen to the child. So it's bribery again, right? Take a bunch of food and a bunch of snacks and a bunch of good things, take it to the prophet and say, now that I've kind of buttered you up and now that you're, you know, now that you think really highly of me, how about now telling me what's going to happen to my child who is sick? And Jeroboam's wife, verse 4, she did so. She arose and she went to Shiloh. She came to the house of Ahijah. Ahijah was old and he was blind, but he could still hear from God. And God said to him, verse 5, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. This is what you shall say to her. All right, so that, this trick didn't last very long. Uh, before she even walks in his house, he already knows. Right, when she came in, she pretended to be another woman, but Ahijah heard the sound of her feet, and he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be someone else? Ugh. My plan did not work. It lasted all of zero seconds before he figured out exactly who I am. Wife of Jeroboam, I am charged with giving you unbearable news. This is what God says. Because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, Yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you, Jeroboam, you have done evil before, above all who were before you, and you have gone and made yourself gods and images and provoked me to anger and cast me behind your back. So I've got bad news because you've done bad things. Here's the bad news. Behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam, and I will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free, in Israel, and I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is gone. So, there was that kind of crass language a couple chapters ago. This is more of that. If you read this in the original language, there's some, there's some bathroom humor going on here. I'm not going to get into it, but if you're interested, come find me after, after the service. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs will eat them. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven will eat them. No one's going to get buried. No one's going to get a proper burial. You're going to die. And you're just get, your body's going to, be, going to be sitting there. Now arise, therefore, and go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. Israel will mourn for, them and mourn for him and bury him. And only Jeroboam shall come to the grave. Because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. 
Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. And henceforth, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed shaken in water and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave her their fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their Asherim provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. So Jeroboam's line is going to be cut off. Israel, all of the people of Israel are going to be scattered, deported into other nations, enslaved, taken off into captivity. Verse 17, Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed, and she came to Terzah, and she came to the threshold of the house, and right when she did, the child died. And all Israel buried him and mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which was spoken by his servant Ahijah the prophet. So again, like episode after episode after episode of sin, rebellion, idolatry, disobedience, judgment. Over and over and over. Sin, judgment, sin, judgment, sin, judgment. Verse 19. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred and reigned. And behold, all of those things, aren't they written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And at that time, or in the time that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years, and he slept with his fathers, and Nadab, his son, reigned in his place. We're going to see that phrase over and over. Like, he slept with his fathers, and everything that he did was written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel, which uh, most scholars agree is not the book of Chronicles in the Bible. It's another book that we don't really have access to. But he, this author obviously did. And he said, if you want a more detailed look, go, go there and take, take a look at it. That's the northern tribes of Israel. That's Jeroboam's leadership. Surely things are doing better in the south in Judah under Rehoboam, right? Let's see. Verse 21. Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. He was 41 when he began to reign. He reigned 17 years in the city that the Lord had chosen of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Nama, the Ammonite. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Gosh. And they provoked him to jealousy with their sins, and they committed more than that that their fathers had done. They built for themselves high places and pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. And they did according to the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So things are not going any better in Judah than they were in Israel. They're worshiping idols there just like they were uh, worshiping idols in Israel. It explicitly mentions male cult prostitutes. It's particularly distasteful. It's borrowed from a lot of the ancient pagan religions of the day. The idea was, basically, what every, every nation, every civilization, every tribe, every, what everyone wanted from their God was fertility, right? We want fertile fields and crops so we can survive this year and have enough food to eat, and we want fertile wombs. We want our, our women to get pregnant and have children so that we will have someone to look after us in our old age. Right? If, you're, if your harvest suffers, you go hungry, and if you don't have kids, you suffer and die in old age. But if you have a good harvest and lots of kids, you're stable and you're secure. So everyone has their gods, everyone prays to their gods for a plentiful harvest and for children. And cult prostitution was part of that strategy. Not going to get into it too much, but essentially uh, you would go visit a prostitute in the temple in full view of the gods... The idea was that the gods would see what you're doing. They were 
visual creatures, so that would make them want to do the same thing. The gods would engage in similar behavior that you're engaging in, and then up in the heavens, and then the result would be that rain would come down, and it would result in fertility for the fields, crops, children, right? That's, what, that's how most, that was the theological paradigm of most of the surrounding nations of Israel at that time. It's gross, it's crass, but that's what they did. And that's what Rehoboam imports from them into the nation of Judah. He says, let's take that disgusting practice and implement it here. His father Solomon had borrowed the practice of child sacrifice to Molech. He is borrowing cult prostitution. And it results in judgment. Verse 25. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. And he took away all the treasures of the house of the Lord and all the treasures of the palace of the king. He took away everything. He took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. And Rehoboam, verse 27, was left having to replace them with shields of bronze. What a loser. He committed them to the hands of the officer of the guard who kept the doors king of the house. And as often as the king went into the house of the Lord, the guard carried them and brought them back to the guard room. So we've been downgraded from gold and prosperity and lavish luxury to bronze because the, the kings of Israel are sinning against God and incurring God's judgment. Verse 29, the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Jeroboam and Rehoboam continually. And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was Nama the Ammonite, and Abijam, his son, reigned in his place. We'll pick up with him next week. That's the story of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Right? Solomon sins, turns from the Lord. God judges him and rips the kingdom out of him and out of his family. Rehoboam and Jeroboam both follow in the footsteps of Solomon. They both turn from the Lord. They both worship idols instead of God. They invite the judgment of God onto them and their families and their kingdoms. And that's really the big takeaway from this text. It's the big takeaway of the entire Old Testament, if I'm being honest, is that God's judgment is coming against human sin and human rebellion. If you reject God, if you turn away from the Lord, if you worship other things instead of worshiping God, if you disregard the word of God, then the judgment of God is real and the judgment of God is inevitable. It might not come right away. You might not get hit by a struck of light, struck by lightning the second that you do something wrong, but God's judgment is real and it is coming and it is inevitable. In the case of Solomon and Rehoboam and Jeroboam, it took years, it took decades, but it eventually came. Galatians 6, God cannot be mocked, a man reaps what he sows. 1 Corinthians 10, stories like these in the Old Testament were recorded and kept so that they could serve as examples for us, right? To warn us and to encourage us not to follow in the foolish, sinful footsteps of the people that the stories are about. So this story of king after king after king turning away from God, disregarding God's word, refusing to listen to wise, godly counsel from people around them, worshiping idols instead of God, and then receiving the judgment of God, this happened as a warning so that we will turn from our sin and trust in God. For all the times that 
you or I, like Rehoboam, have hurt others, taken advantage of others, been indifferent to the suffering of others, cared more about our own welfare than we cared about others, God's judgment is coming against us. For all the times that you or I, like Rehoboam, have been prideful and refused to listen to wise, godly counsel because it wasn't telling us, it, you know, it wasn't convenient and it wasn't something that we wanted to do or hear. So we ignore it, find other counsel that we prefer. God's judgment is coming against us. For all the times that you or I, like Jeroboam, worship created things instead of the creator God when we prioritize money or possessions or status or reputation over God, God's judgment is coming against us. For the times when you or I, like, like Jeroboam, when we try to bully and manipulate other people into saying or doing what we want them to do instead of listening and repenting with humility, God's judgment is coming again. Like the, this, the story of Rehoboam and Jeroboam is a big neon flashing sign that says the judgment of God is coming against sin. It's coming against idolatry. It's coming against pride. The judgment of God is coming against your sin. So turn from it, run from it, and flee from it, and run to Jesus to save you. Only Jesus can save you from the inevitable judgment and wrath that is coming for you. Rehoboam wasn't the true king of God's people. Jeroboam wasn't the true king of God's people. Jesus is the true king. And only Jesus can save us because only Jesus took the judgment and the punishment and the wrath that was meant for us. When Jesus died on the cross, he was treated as if he was guilty of all of the sins that we are guilty of. All of the ways that that you and I have walked in the footsteps of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. We've rebelled against God, turned away from God, loved other things more than we loved God, refused to listen and refused to repent. All of that sin, all of that pride, all of that rebellion, when Jesus died on the cross, he was treated as if he was guilty of all of that. And if you trust in Jesus, you will be spared from all of that punishment and judgment. You'll be saved from it. And you'll be welcomed into the presence of God forever and ever to be treated as if you have lived the perfect life of Christ. It's the good news. The good news of the gospel is that God's judgment is coming against sin, but Jesus died in our place to save us from that judgment so that if we trust in him, we can be reconciled to him and live with him for forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we read these stories in the Old Testament. It's almost as if they're one big connected story telling the, kind of reiterating the the theme that Humanity has rebelled against God. Humanity has incited the judgment of God and that humanity needs a Savior. Lord, we thank you for sending Jesus to save us from our sin. 
We pray, Lord, that you would help us to look to him, trust in him, listen to your word, and obey you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.